Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, and we'll be beginning at verse 12. It's easy to remember, John 12, verse 12. And again, what Paul just read in Psalm 118 really is a wonderful introduction, and we're going to see um, a quote from verse 26 in this passage very shortly. But we are going to see this morning in this passage that the hour, that the time on the divine calendar has come, the divine schedule for something incredibly and most, the most significant event in human history is about to take place. And even as we read in Psalm 118 there, it describes, it, it is, there is a, this is a fulfillment, as we see in John 12, of this passage, and specifically even verse 24, was read, this is the day which the Lord hath made. And many times that's misunderstood, that that is every day. And in a broad sense, you, that is true. It's every day. I mean, that, that every day the Lord has made, and we ought to be thankful for the opportunity to live and to minister and to um, share Christ. But specifically, this points to a specific day or a number of days, a specific time where the Messiah would come and offer up himself for the people. And it says, we will rejoice and be glad in it. And that rejoicing becomes so much more significant when we see it from that perspective. And truly, we're going to see this morning that the time, the day has come. It is not now approaching. The hour is nigh where the king, the Messiah, will give his very life. And he will enter in design, but not in the way that many people are anticipating as we get into this. Remember last week as we continued and the, the uh, events that were proceeding, um, the resurrection of Lazarus and all that happened because of that. We had the Council of the Sanhedrin, the High Council of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and chief priests, and it was the decision that Jesus would have to die, and at that point, it was determined. Everything else was just a matter of the details. At the same time, Jesus was being honored in Bethany for who he was, his ministry, and for the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus was there, and Mary um, did this wonderful, significant, um, extravagant act of worship before Christ. And the honor that Jesus received at that dinner in Bethany will now reach really its full intensity, its full apex of all of those that are excited and in wonder about the fact that that believe that Jesus is the one that would come in this event we have today is the apex of their praise and adoration as Jesus will enter Jerusalem in what is normally referred to as the triumphal entry. But Jesus is not going to enter Jerusalem with the intention that many think that he is. Most everyone, really everyone around him, misunderstands the point of this entry, but even the praise that they give points to the glory that Jesus will receive in a way that they do not expect him to receive it. The king has come, 
but he's come to bring peace and salvation. And he's not come to do that politically in this passage, but he will bring it through literally his own death. And we'll see here the hour on the divine schedule has come and it remains. Jesus, the king, will enter into Zion and will offer up his life in Zion, the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, on the hill. All of those um, aspects describe what Zion means, the hill that Jerusalem is on, the city of Jerusalem. But many times, and this is what we miss as well and what his followers would miss, in the tragedy, the sobering events of his death, there would still be great glory. And it would bring glory to the king through his suffering and sacrifice of himself. So the hour is come. And if you'll skip ahead to, um, we'll get back to verse 12. But we will read from verse 23 before we pray. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the son of man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn or a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth or it remains alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Lord, as we get ready for this presentation, this, this examination of this passage, let us as believers, your children that have put their faith and trust in Christ and with the proclaimers here as Jesus enters Jerusalem, give praise and honor. Let us also be willing to give even more sacrificially of our time and of our service. That as we see Jesus willing to sacrifice his life for the good of the people, that they might have salvation, that we might be motivated to proclaim this, and also to be willing to give up the things in our lives that are most important to us, if you call us to do that, to serve you and minister effectively. And Father, for those that are still struggling with whether to make the choice to put their faith, to believe in Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior, may today be the day that they would do that. Help them to see the hour has come. And there will be an hour that will come soon where Jesus will return and their opportunity to trust in him will be over. So we pray that today that people that are still on the fence about this would choose to trust Christ and take his salvation for sins that he offers. Lord, if this were to take place, then we would have success in this study this morning. So work in hearts, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The hour has come, and the hour has come, first of all, in verses 12 through 19, for the king to enter Zion, to enter the holy city. And he has come in the name of the Lord, verse 12. On the next day, much people, or it has the idea of a very large crowd that were come to the feast. And we had just described last week in the preceding verses how there, were a large, there was a large crowd, a large group of people. Uh, Josephus, the historian at the time, literally has the number in the thousands. It's remarkable how many people came for the Passover and were crowded into this city. It truly was a large crowd, and people were asking, where's Jesus? As they came early, not just for the Passover, but for the purification rituals to be purified, ritually cleansed, 
They were awaiting Jesus. Where's Jesus? And now they hear word that he is coming to Jerusalem. And many, a large crowd, many people come to see him who had inquired about him. And they react passionately, obviously, as we're going to see here. When they hear of Jesus' soon arrival into the city, they want to give him the appropriate welcome of a king. These folks at this point see Jesus' entry here as a fulfillment of Messiah, and many people have been waiting for this moment. Those who have um, certainly put sincerely their faith in Christ think this is the moment that the Messiah is coming and give us a, the salvation that we desire, but the salvation that Jesus has come to offer is far different from what they're expecting, and again, we'll see that soon. Here is this wonderful time of rejoicing as they welcome their Messiah, the king. In verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out, went forth to meet him. And what did they cry enthusiastically? Hosanna. And we'll look at the rest of this soon. But even that word Hosanna in the palm branches here, let's, figure, let's, let's describe a little bit more about what these mean. Palm branches were used extensively in the Feast of the Tabernacles, which we have talked about recently, and how they were used. We won't go back into that now. But palm branches traditionally were um, used many times for that Feast of the Tabernacles and had um, a significant meaning along with what the Feast of the Tabernacles portrayed. But by the time of this event and Jesus entering into Jerusalem, these palm branches were more generally used to signify other things as well. They signified the themes of joy and of victory. And so as they grabbed these palm branches and they were waving them and shouting Hosanna, all of this pointed to what the peoples in their minds were um, focused on was joy that Jesus had come. In their minds, the Messiah was entering into Zion, into Jerusalem. And he was come to bring victory. And so you can imagine that as the people who had waited so long for this and think, this is it. Now, there were some that were very skeptical. And of course, the religious leaders certainly had to be fearful and dismayed as they had just condemned Jesus to die. And here you think of what they had just decided to do. And we're going to see the reaction of the Pharisees in just a minute. As Jesus is proclaimed king and praised as he enters the city, maybe there was a little bit of a, uh-oh, maybe we were a little too quick to decide to condemn him at this point. But their intent, their intent upon bringing his death in the midst of that, the excitement of the people, certainly appropriate to apply to Jesus' entry at this time. Um, Lightfoot, a well-known scholar, classic scholar of the Bible, points out that the palm branch was found on many Jewish coins even um, of the period 140 BC to AD 70. And there were many with the inscription that even said the redemption of Zion on the coin. All of this pointing to an expectation of salvation and redemption from Jesus but not a clear understanding of what that would entail. Jesus will tell us soon what that actually will look like, but we'll continue with the narrative here for now. And then they cried Hosanna. 
Well, what does Hosanna mean? It has a technical meaning. The technical meaning in the Hebrew is the idea of God, please save us. Certainly appropriate as Jesus is entering in um, at this time and then saying Hosanna. But again, at this point in Jewish usage, it had probably had a more general idea, an interjection of respectable praise and greeting. As language often does, it had um, moved from its original intention and people used it to praise, to show respect as a respectable leader or royalty would enter in and people were excited. They would shout Hosanna. And it was a way to praise the individual, to worship them as they came in. And so in the people's minds, they're offering praise um, or a greeting to someone that is very important to them. Hosanna, they loudly said. And then they quoted what we just read, Psalm 118.26. Blessed is, now remember in the text that we read, is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They added the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And what we find here is that that psalm at this point, and it was the intention, even in the original writing, it pointed to the fact that there is a messianic expectation. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. When the psalmist wrote those words, it pointed to the fact that the Messiah would come. And these people, then this large crowd adds king of Israel because they put the explanation point on the fact that this was their messianic expectation, that they were looking at Jesus as king. He was Messiah and he truly had come in the name of the Lord. That idea of one that comes in the power, in authority of the name of God the Father. Here he is entering this, and they say, blessed is this king of Israel. Not that they're pronouncing blessing on him, but really the idea of the king of Israel is is, um, blessed. He is a king of blessedness that his entry into the city would bring blessings and rejoicing. And there's this beautiful then, again, picture of excitement. You've seen pictures of this in your mind as you've read this many times. Those of you that have visited Jerusalem and Israel, maybe you were to that point or to this very place um, where Jesus entered in. And by the way, this is one of those few events that's mentioned in all four Gospels. So this is something that the Bible is emphasizing here. And there's also, as well, a rich Old Testament background behind this that we're going to be looking at uh, continually as we go along here. Um, So these folks are loudly um, proclaiming this verse and the power and authority of Jesus Christ. What is their intention? Well, their, inco- their conscious intention is to praise the entry of the king into Jerusalem. But actually, as well, when they say Hosanna, there's another unintended call. And whether they realize it or not, they're calling out for Jesus to save them. God, please save us. All of this very significant for what Jesus is about to do. And so it continues, verse 14, and Jesus, when he had found a young donkey or a young colt, 
uh, that was a donkey sat thereon, as it is written, fear not, uh, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on a donkey's coat. Now, as you read this, you might think, well, this says here that Jesus found a young donkey, but I remember in the other gospels that he told the disciples to go get the donkey. And again, note that picture had God's sovereignty and Jesus' plan of the details in all of this. None of this was a surprise. Jesus had this all planned on the agenda of the Father to do this. And yes, that did happen. He told his disciples to go get the donkey the donkey, and they found him, and they brought him. So what's going on here? Is this different? Is this a, um, a different aspect that, um, or is um, conflicted against the other synoptic accounts? Well, no. This idea of Jesus found a donkey isn't really as much he found, went out by himself and got a young donkey and then sat on it. That word for found can include he found by others helping him. It includes other people helping him to find that donkey. And it also has the idea that he found the opportunity at a particular time. He was probably walking toward Jerusalem. And when this happened, he took opportunity at some point to actually get on the donkey, found opportunity to ride this colt, and therefore fulfilling scripture again, Zechariah, 9 verse 9, but also sometimes that, that's missed is there's also a quote here from what we can tell in Isaiah 40, 90. Let me show you this. Verse 15, the quote is, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, let me read to you what Zechariah 9, 9 says. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey, and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. That verse in John said, fear not, daughter of Zion. Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Well, which one? Well, in actuality, there was both. There was um, rejoicing, that's obvious, and, and a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 here. But why fear not? Well, it seems as if these are two quotations. There's another verse that describes the coming of the king in Isaiah 49. And that verse says, O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, Zion. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up. And then it says, be not afraid, or you might say, fear not. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. And so this quote in verse 15 is a combination of Isaiah 40, verse 9, and Zechariah 9, 9, that specified that the Messiah would come and enter Zion in this way, the holy city riding upon this donkey, all of this in the divine plan of God that's working out to the very detail, the way that God had planned it and the way that Jesus is fulfilling it. Amazing in all of this. Did you ever think as you're reading this story, though, why a donkey? 
Why did Jesus have to come and ride a donkey? Don't, doesn't a conquering king uh, many times ride a war horse or some other uh, significant vehicle or, or in, uh, conduct themselves in such a way that they make it clear they've come to conquer, to overcome? Well, that's the whole purpose, why Jesus chose a donkey and why in the plan of God that he would come to ride on a donkey, because a donkey doesn't signify um, power and a, an ability to overcome, although it was a, a, burst, a beast of burden for royalty. Royalty did ride donkeys. But a donkey, riding a donkey for important people was a symbol of peace. And so perfect then for this occasion, as, it, as he's riding this donkey coming into Jerusalem, he didn't enter to subdue a kingdom. The crowds expected as they're waving their palm branches, the Messiah has come, the king has entered, and he's going to subdue our political enemies and give us salvation. But no, folks, they should have realized as he's entering in on a donkey, he has come as the prince of peace to bring peace to them, spiritual peace, spiritual life. And they're excited. They recognize that the king has entered, but they totally have missed his purposes for why he has come. Um, but really, in the midst of all that's going on, the excitement, there wasn't one person in this audience we really truly understood at the time the significance of these events, except for Jesus himself. And that's why we have the next verse. Because remember, these folks were primarily at this point made up of disciples. Now, there were probably some others thrown in um, that had not been followers of Jesus, but were excited about. And we're going to see here in just a minute, there were people that had come up that had seen the resurrection of Lazarus and now are following Jesus. There's a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, but this was mostly his disciples. The other synoptics point this out and worshiping him and offering praise to him. Um, there was a lot of people involved in this. By the way, there's another aspect in this. And you think, um, why did these very people that were praising him as he enters into Jerusalem, literally, literally days later, call for him to be crucified. There's a lot, kind of some controversy. Were these the same people? I had always thought growing up they were, and they were just really fickle, and they just really, um, they were really being hypocritical when they did this, and then turning around and crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, literally a few days later. And uh, in undergrad, I had a very um, thoughtful Bible teacher and Bible doctrines that said, does this have to be the same group? Does it have to be the same group of people? Oh, yeah, of course they did. But then he pointed out, and as I mentioned already, there are a lot of people in Jerusalem, thousands and, and thousands of folks. There's a lot of people crammed into this city of Zion of Jerusalem. And it certainly is probable that a large crowd that's following after Jesus doesn't necessarily have to be the same large crowd that was crying on him to be crucified later on. There might have been some mix on both. Maybe this crowd, when they saw that Jesus had been um, tortured and was getting ready to die, they lost their enthusiasm and just became quiet. 
That's a possibility. I think there's a good probability we're overall talking about two different groups of people here. This is mostly his disciples. But even his disciples then in this group, this verse says, doesn't understand. They didn't understand at the time the true significance. Yes, they understood that he was entering in as king. And there was another bit of excitement along these lines, too, is that Jesus had been, and we've seen this even in John, rather muted about the fact of, of, of his messianic purpose and expectation. Yes, he talked about it multiple times in John, but he didn't accept a lot of worship and acclamation in this public way for it. And people are realizing now as he's entering into the top the city that he is willing to accept the praise that they've been wanting to give him for a long time. And there's an excitement about this. Again, no intention, no idea that he would be glorified by his death. The disciples look at all of this and remember back, it says, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they these that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Later on, the disciples would look back through the Spirit's work in their lives and through looking through these scripture passages in the Old Testament, and they would finally see, wow, the real significance of what was going on here. Folks, we have the Holy Spirit today to understand the significance and to proclaim it, that the King has come, the hour came. The hour is going to involve something else as well. So verse 18, um, or verse 17, the people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave. This was the people that probably had been mourning with Mary, that had seen this happening, that had trusted Christ. Now they're following Jesus from Bethany. And then you've got the crowd that comes to meet them from out of Jerusalem, and the two meet together. That he, and they, they were with him then when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and they bear witness or, or record or testimony. And they bore witness to the people that would meet them from the city. For this cause reason, the people also met them, for that they had heard that he had done this miracle. So you have these two groups of people converging upon each other as Jesus is entering the city. And the folks that have seen Jesus, or Lazarus raised from the dead, let me tell you about what this king has done. He's raised this man from the dead. And the people from the city said, I just heard of that. That's amazing. Is it true? Is it, did it really happen? Yes. Maybe Lazarus was there with Mary and Martha. He's right over there following the king. That's amazing. And the tumult here must have been incredible. The significance of this, amazing. And so the <laughs> Pharisees see this as well. And they're not very happy, right? What do they say? The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. In other words, you see that we are gaining, that you are gaining nothing. All of our efforts have been unsuccessful. We've gained no advantage in trying to mollify and silence this man. We've been totally unsuccessful. We've gained nothing. We've gained no advantage. Behold, look, the world has gone after him. And of course, this is exact, exact, exaggeration, born from exasperation. But folks, it's magnificent in its scope, is it not? The whole world has gone after him. And truly in that moment, it probably felt that way. The <laughs> Jews are coming after him. In this next section, we're going to see that the Gentiles, the Greeks as well, 
are going after him. And it is true then, in a sense, that the world is going after him. People represented from the world are interested and want to follow him. And uh, Carson, a uh, commentator, says this, the Pharisees are concerned that a few Judeans were being influenced, but their words actually expressed John, the writer's conviction that Jesus was conquering the world. And so two different um, perceptions here. Folks, in application, before we get into verse 20 then, do we take time daily, not just to read God's word and pray, but to meditate on what Jesus has done, his power, his authority, and deliverance in our lives? If we do, that will well up within us a spirit of appreciation that will cause us in our spirit to want to worship, to say, Hosanna, to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A spiritual desire to want to worship him the more we reflect on his power and authority and deliverance in our lives. But at the same time, just like the disciples were able to experience later on, do we allow quiet time in the midst of our reading God's word and praying for the spirit to work the word into our daily lives to show us things from God's word? It took the disciples time to really understand the significance, but the spirit showed them. Do we take the time that we need for the spirit? to really do his work in our lives so we can see the significance of what we're reading and what's going on with Jesus. We need to do that. And then when the spirit shows us that, we need to testify Jesus' power in our life. What's going on here? Well, the hour came for him to enter Zion, but the hour has also come, is come for the king to die in Zion. And he has come to receive glory, but not in the way that they would think. Verse 20, and there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. These seemed to be Gentile believers that seemed to be captivated by Jewish worship and the Passover rituals. And kind of like we want to go to Jerusalem today and to visit the Holy Land. These Gentiles wanted to see everything that was going on. But then they heard that Jesus was there. And then, whoa, what an incredible opportunity. We might get to see Jesus and we might actually get to meet him, meet him, Gentile people that wanted to meet Jesus and take opportunity to get a chance to meet Jesus. And so they came to Philip. Maybe they somehow had been acquainted with him. Philip is a Greek name. And maybe they thought, well, we'll just go to the guy with the Greek name and see if he can get us in to see Jesus. And he was a Bethsaida of Galilee, reminding us again of where Philip came from. And they desired, or they asked him, saying, Sir, we would, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip didn't quite know what to do with this. And so he cometh and he telleth Andrew. And remember, Andrew is the guy, the disciple in the gospel, in this gospel, that is constantly bringing people to Jesus. So Andrew just says, Well, they want to see Jesus. Let's bring them to Jesus. I'm good at that. It's what I've been doing. And he and Philip tell Jesus. As a reminder, you know, I told you as a young man, I lived in Central Florida. I had many opportunities to visit the Disney theme parks and um, the Disney area. And there was a time, I forget what it's called now, but it was called Disney Marketplace at the time. And there's a huge shopping area where I would go with with friends. And and I happened to be with a group of young teens at, at this point in this particular story. We were walking around, and one of them looked ahead, 
and saw a famous, obviously a famous major league baseball player at that time. You know, I don't even remember um, who it was at this point. It might've been somebody like Sammy Sosa or Ken Griffey Jr. or something like that. And he was with his family enjoying Disney parks. And they're like, it's Ken Griffey Jr. Oh, we got to get his autograph, you know? And they, they just took off and started running. I'm like, guys, guys, he doesn't want that. But they were already halfway there. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess I got to follow him. And so we kind of had a lineup and, hey, are you Ken? Yeah. And, and so, and he didn't actually look that excited about actually seeing them. He kind of was with his daughter and his wife and he really just was kind of wanting to enjoy the park, you know, by himself. And I felt kind of bad that all these teenagers are, are coming up getting his autograph. But finally, by the time they were done, it was just me standing there. And he kind of had this annoyed look on his face. And I just kind of looked at him and said, well, can I have your autograph too? <laughs> Let's throw that in. Then he looked really irritated. And I, I, I learned from that. You know what? If you meet somebody famous, just give them some, some distance, some room, and let them enjoy their time out of the spotlight. But regardless, I think of these Gentiles kind of like this. Oh, we get to meet Jesus, and they're excited about the possibility. And so Andrew and Philip talk to Jesus. But Jesus answers in a very interesting way here. And Jesus answered them saying, he actually talks and gives an answer to Andrew and Philip. He totally disregards the Greeks that are standing there wanting to meet him. And he says, the hour is come. It's here that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus doesn't address, address the Greeks at all, but instead comments about them to his disciples. And this is significant, folks. We miss this in, this, um, in these events that take place. There, Jesus is saying that the fact that the Gentiles have come to seek him has now the turning point, the time. It signifies the time. The hour of his glorifying is now here. Literally what the Pharisees said between the Jews and the Gentiles, the world is following after, is gone after him. And Jesus says, now this is the sign that it's time for me to be glorified. But he's speaking of something different than worship and honor in the sense that everyone else is talking about. Um, there's a couple quotes here that I found really good. By glorified, they thought that the subjected kingdoms of earth would grovel before the conqueror's feet. But by glorified, he actually meant crucified. A scholar named Barclay. Another one named Leon Morris, Jesus speaks not of tragedy, but of triumph. He is not to be dishonored. He is to be glorified, but that by way of the cross. Isaiah 52, this is really a, a fulfillment of Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what they had not been told, they shall see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Talking here about the fact that the Messiah would be glorified through pain and through death. It was there for them to see, but everybody missed this key point. But Jesus makes it clear. Verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth, it remains alone. 
But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Another beautiful agrarian example here, the death of a seed, a very simple example that everybody would have understood. A seed dies so that the plant can have life. And so Jesus describes his death as having remarkable, wonderful, fruitful results for the people. But he would have to die first. But in this is also a practical application for his own followers. And that is verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Here he is giving to people the choice that they have. You hold on to your life and you decide you want to do with your life with your self-interest and your ambitions and you want to have control of your own life rather than give it over to me in faith and trust and follow after me, the very life that you're clinging to, that you don't trust me with, you will lose that, and you will lose it eternally. Sobering warning here. But he that hateth his life, not in a macabre sense of you know um, hating your own body or hating yourself in that way, but this as the idea of not hanging on to your own ambitions and your own desires and goals so much that you won't give them and worship over to Jesus and trust him and believe in him. When you're willing to hate your life in that way, in this world, you shall keep it unto life eternal. For those that would put their faith and trust in Jesus and give their lives over to him, so to speak, they would have eternal life in abundance. There's the choice, folks. Jesus makes it simple. One more here uh, quote or thing that Jesus has to say for his followers before we finish up in verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. You know, first, or Peter in 1 Peter 2.21 gave us the same principle. He said, for here even unto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. It should be no surprise that if Jesus was going to sacrifice his life for the good of the people, that he would call us as his servants to do the same, to not clutch to our life, but to give it over in use to Jesus. And if you're willing to do that, if any man serve me, the last part of that verse 26, him will my father honor. So in the end, folks, are you, do you think that you can honor yourself and that you can hold on to your own life and experience what's best for you and experience um, all or be, or be blessed in your own way as you follow after your own things that you desire? Or are you willing to let those go and you let Jesus use your life and serve him and allow the Father to bless you later on. Folks, for those of us that are willing to do that, the blessings will be great. I promise you, Jesus says, my Father will honor. Do we believe, do we trust our Heavenly Father that he knows how to honor those that serve him faithfully? Jesus is calling us to trust in that. Can we trust him? We need to. Application for those that have not trusted Christ, who have not given their lives over to Him, choose to 
choose Jesus over your own life ambitions, over your own life. Believe in him. Trust in him. Put your faith in him and allow him to use you and you will experience life eternal. If you reject Jesus and say, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. You will lose your life for all eternity, folks. It isn't a small thing. It is sobering. Jesus calls us to make that choice. And for those of us then who have made the choice, continue to decide every day, I'm going to serve Jesus first. Even with my own schedule, with my own time, if Jesus makes it clear, here is someone I want you to minister to in your community. Here is something that I want to do. It may disrupt your time. It may make things difficult for your schedule. But put yourself as a servant over, uh, over your own needs and your own time and give it to me. And God will honor that when we serve him and honor him in that way. Are we willing to do that? You see, folks, as we finish here, the king first entered Zion, as we just said, to be glorified, but not to politically save it being glorified that way, but in his death. And that would provide salvation that was offered to the world. And folks, one day the king will come again to Zion and he will be glorified in his reign of power and authority. And at that point, we have no more opportunity to choose him. So we must be sure, right? Are you ready for his return? Have you made the ultimate choice to give up your life for Jesus? You won't regret it. That's a promise that Jesus makes. Father, let us take in these truths and be moved by them. Again, if there's one who still is holding out on trusting in you, may today be the day they just give their lives over to you in faith and trust and trust you with their lives and then choose to serve you faithfully. For the faithful servants and believers that are here, may we continue to be faithful and serve you, even if we're inconvenienced, knowing that we will receive honor that's far beyond what we could ask or think. One day when Jesus returns. So Lord, help us to testify of what Jesus has done and of the gospel and to serve you faithfully. And all this we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.